what, what the last, I think, in my opinion, what the last 18 months has shown is, is that you've got a lot of people who at some point have been involved in local church whose lives look absolutely nothing like the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, that, that should be really, uh, I think, jarring and disturbing to leaders of churches um, and the things that they have been doing. Like, are, are you, are you, are we a social club um, with a little bit of like Christian feel goodness sprinkled on top um, or are we something different? And I, I think we just have to be really honest about whether or not the things that we're doing are designed to do what we need them to do. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we expound on Zig Ziggler's be, do, and have philosophy, meaning you have to be the right kind of person and do the right things before you can expect to have what really matters in life. And we want you to have what matters. Also, check out my podcast, What Drives You, where we talk with people who have reached impressive achievements to ask what drove them, good and bad. And we dig into the very motives that drive us all with the goal of clarifying just what is driving you. Then in my True Life podcast, we want to get you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three of my shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. And if you're new to The Ziggler Show, I invite you to visit ziggler.com. Connect with Tom Ziggler and the Ziggler family about upcoming events and how they can come alongside you and help you inspire your true performance. Innovation is our focus today, and what you heard at the top of the show was Doug Paul, author of Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. Doug's a managing partner and innovation strategist of Catapult, an organization that helps leaders build successful ministries that scale. You heard him at the top of the show talking about churches today. As we discussed, their necessary need for massive innovation, but so far they seem to be looking at it poorly, in our opinion. But the point of the show is you, and I take aim at innovation being counterintuitive for all of us. We work and strive so hard to find what drives success in our lives and businesses, and we want to say, you know, yes, we got it, and then reap the rewards, which we can and do for a time. But in today's world, especially for business, things just are going to change. Others are going to innovate and threaten what we provide and we risk being eclipsed and even being made obsolete. Even in our personal lives, what we find produces success is often going to plateau or wane. This is our discussion today. You can find Doug at DougPaul.org and check out again his book, Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. So next, Doug Paul, and we're going to drill into innovation. Doug, innovation, as you know, I mean, my gosh, in business, personal development, I mean, we hear it constantly. I just feel like it runs aground sometimes. And so that's why you're here. You're the expert. You're going to tell, you're going to help me figure this out. You ready? We'll see how that goes, but I'm sure we'll have a good conversation. Okay. Well, so, you know, from a business standpoint, I mean, we all know the stories and you, uh, I have to say, your book is so fun to read because you have so many stories. It was interesting to me. I learned some new things uh, in there just from the stories that you showcase to, you know, to show the analogies for your points in there. But we all know the ones I always think of IBM. 
You know, here's IBM. They were the kings of the universe. They did not innovate. And we know the rest of the story. And they got overtaken by, you know, those who were innovating. So we hear about that in business stuff. But here's, I think here's what gets me from a personal development standpoint. You know, so here I am. I'm Kevin. I'm a person. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm uh, dealing with my own wellness or lack thereof in myself, which affects my business. So to me, it's all one big thing. And there's this propensity, of course, to find what works, right? Can we just find what works? And I feel like my innate tendency then is if it works, why can't that just be good? And I, and I wonder if people are going along and that's what's so hard because we feel like if it works, we found something, oh my gosh, we got the results we wanted and shouldn't we be able to stay there? And yet what you're showcasing in the book and what I'm seeing even in my own life is maybe not, but that feels like a rub. Yeah. I, I mean, b- because we, th- there. I think what you're highlighting is we've only got so many hours in a day and we've only got so much mental, emotional bandwidth. Yeah. And it's like, look, if this thing works, why am I, why am I going to like try to like mess with this? What can sometimes feel like alchemy, like when our life is working, sometimes it's like we have struck gold. Yeah. Why in the world would I, would I tinker with that? Um, And I, I think it has, it has something to do with the fact that it's, it's embracing uh, what I think is, this is my, this is my point of view a, a fully orbed picture of reality, okay. uh, which is just because it's working now, a fully orbed picture of reality knows that it, that doesn't mean that it'll work tomorrow. And the more that we study culture, the more that we study human development, the more that we can even, I, I think with, a, a pretty fully like transparent way we can say, and we know it's not going to work that much longer because of how fast culture is changing and thus how fast we have to change. Okay. Well, that was my, literally my next point. You, you, you stole my thunder. There was asking you about change. Cause when I look at here, I am in a culture that is changing. And you point that out too, that we have, I've read this in a couple books lately, you know, that the change is happening. It's such a dramatically fast rate. So, uh, it's happening in the culture. Now let's take the roles that I have. I have a marriage. Well, I'm not the same guy that married my wife 28 years ago. She's not the same woman. So we have changed. That's going to require something, some response. My kids, I mean, anybody who has kids knows that. I mean, you got a kid who's five and it's one way when he's 10, it's a different when he's 15, dramatically different. And if they're 25, whatever. So they're going to change. How can I parent the same way? Work in business. And then myself, I have changed. And I, even that I've looked at that, uh, Doug and I, you know, I exercise has always been easy for me. And yet good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of always been as easy for me. (laughs) I'm one of those, those people, Um, but it is. So that's an, that's an area. I wish I was, I wish I was, could say something good about the financial area of my life. It's a train wreck always has been, Um, but exercise has been, but even there, man, I just get bored. I just get bored. I get bored with my diet. I get bored with the exercise. And it took me a long time to let go and allow myself to have a season and a cycle and to realize, man, I'm, 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 I was a pro cyclist. I love cycling. I just don't feel like riding a bike. 
I don't, I, I went, I went a long time not doing that, but it was, again, it was hard not to hold on to that Holy grail of something that had seemed to work. And so as everybody's listening out there and they've striven so much striven, if that's a word, but they've, we'll take, okay. Yeah. They have strove so much to achieve a result. They found it, they've got something and then either it's not working or I wonder if they're also realizing I'm tired of it, but it's hard to let go. And again, you're saying, well, that's the need for innovation. Yeah, and I, but I think some of this is, I had a, I had a mentor um, say this a couple of years ago, did a lot of work around this, but it's like, you have to know yourself to lead yourself. Um, and, and some people I think are able to really compartmentalize certain parts of their life in a healthy way, where for whatever reason, they are going to eat granola and yogurt for the next 15 years, every day at 6.15 a.m., mm-hmm. they're going to hop on their bike and they're going to ride for 75 minutes. And that is what their life is going to look like for the next 50 years. But then there are going to be other aspects of their life that are continually changing. And there are some people that just need constant change um, to keep life interesting and vital and alive. And I, I think one of the mistakes that we can make is we try to figure out like it's one size fits all approach to what habits are going to look like or what innovation is going to look like with parenting, marriage, um, business, health. There is no one size fits all. It's got to be who are you and what does it look like when you are most fully alive? Uh, And I think there's a lot of judgment and shame that we can bring to other people uh, and to ourselves when we're when we're like, you're not doing it right. Well, it's like, I don't know what right means. I just know I need to be honest about who I am and what works for me and doesn't work for me. Do you find yourself, now I know you work with, you know, churches specifically a lot, but with businesses and then with people, and yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stick on the people side for a little bit here, but I do want to hit, hit those others as well. Uh, because I feel like they're more easily tangible. It's with myself, it's with self when I'm looking at the areas of my life, do you find yourself in your own life and with those that you're working with of looking at going, okay, let's, well, you said aware. I mean, this requires awareness. What are the areas in our lives? How are we doing there? So there's an audit there. And it's one thing to look at the area that's not working and say, well, obviously there's a good opportunity for innovation, but let's talk about the area again, that is working. And I guess I'll ask you to make a case for questioning innovation do that questioning the need for it, it look like that. How does somebody know? Is it time for me to question what's going on and look at innovation now, or at least be ready to pivot when the time comes? Yeah. I mean, I think one of my central thoughts around this is that, that innovation, particularly within the life of a leader okay. is, is a muscle. Okay. And so it is like any, like any muscle, like I'll give you an example. So like we have a boat, right. And I, um, we just got a kneeboard and my, my kids are not old enough quite yet where they want a wakeboard. They're terrified of the idea of skiing, but they've, they've taken to kneeboarding pretty quickly. I used to be really great at it. Um, like really, really great, but it's probably been somewhere between 15 and 20 years since I got on a kneeboard. I got my, my dad went out with us. My, my dad and my mom went out with our kids on Saturday or Sunday and we went out. I was like, you know what? I want to get on this thing. So I got on it. Um, and and I, 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 it was, it was a bit like getting on a bicycle. Like I could do all the same stuff, but suddenly like my, there are all of these muscles that I have not worked out in a long time. And I, 
I mean, I lasted a good 15 minutes and then was like, I think I'm done. Like I'm just not, not forever, but for that day, cause it's like the muscles that are needed were completely different than the muscles that I had been working out. And then I woke up on Monday and I think I got run over by a tractor trailer. Right. right. Um, particularly in my hamstrings. It's crazy. Like I'm just not used to working out those muscles. I do think innovation is the same way. I worry for some leaders who, um, who, who are going to be resistant uh, to wanting to change things that when change is needed um, and, and that will happen, like you will have to change something at some point in your life and in your leadership pretty consistently, let's say like every three to five years significantly, that the muscles aren't going to be there for you to do it. And that's my worry. It's not, it's not innovation for the sake of innovation. It's what happens when you need it and you don't have the muscle because innovation is a skill set. Like you can learn to do it, but what if that, what if the, the skill set isn't there for you? Okay. You got me a minute ago. You got me thinking about resilience. So if I'm going yes. to be resilient, I need to be now we're in a time right now. I mean, we're recording this in July of 2021 20, uh, still amidst the you know pandemic, however you label that or define that at this point, but still there. And we saw that. I mean, you saw that. We all saw that, especially in business, those who were I mean, I know so many business people, uh, small business, especially so many of them and some pivoted to use that word again. And yeah. some did not. Now, granted, there were some industries where it was easier to, I, I think, than others. So I can't put everybody in the same bucket. But what you're pointing to is if they have, if you're the type of person who is not innovating, who's found something that's working well, but you just stuck with it for so long, when the change comes, that's going to be forced on you, which it probably is at some time, like the pandemic, something we can't control. Do you have that yeah. Resilience, that muscle and that you saying that pulls us, pulls me to thinking, yeah, we've all got to be practicing this. Yeah. And I'll give you a practical example from business. It's slightly higher up. So my wife um, is the chief strategy officer of an advertising uh, shop. And so they, they were actually, I think last month, just named the number one advertising agency in the United States. Wow. And when the pandemic hit, um, she and their, their executive team, the, the CEO, the COO, CCO, and and her, um, they they were kind of polling what other what other uh, executives were doing around the pandemic, and almost exclusively it was, and we're talking March, April, twenty twenty. It was we have no idea what this is, what impact this is going to have on advertising. Let's wait and see. Um, and their response was completely different which was let's go bring out five to seven ideas to every client we have of the ways in which like they could choose to invest. I won't use the word pivot, but like embrace the moment that they find themselves in. And rather than let the pandemic happen to them, what if they tried to wherever, whatever wave we're on, let's see where this thing takes us. Um, and as a result, they saw a huge wave of uh, not just investment, but new revenue that was coming in, both for their clients as well as for them personally as an, as an advertising shop. But I think the reason they were able to do that wasn't because they made a decision in the moment. I think it's because in the culture, there was already muscles for we are going to be proactive. Yeah. We are not going to let business happen to us. We are going to make our own waves. And I think that's 
those are fundamentally different approaches um, to to both your 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 personal life, your leadership life, and your business life. Yeah, I was thinking an ad shop. I mean, it's such a breeding ground for creativity to begin with. That should have been the first place we all turned to to say, okay, pandemic hit, my business is you know shut down nearly. What can I do? Yeah, I mean, like, and one of theirs was like, one of their clients is DoorDash, um, who has had a, a, a pretty meteoric rise in the last 18 months because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Great time. But it didn't, it wasn't, it could have been a different story. Um, it look. it's makes sense now that a, a home delivery food service would have a completely di- would be able to ride it differently, but there were other home delivery services that chose different paths during the pandemic. And that one of the reasons that they were successful is kind of the proactive choices they were making. Yeah. Well, you know, looking at business, I mean, you go through a lot of examples in the book and of course the place to look at innovation, I think that brings us to it. Like you talked about is that change that's forced upon us. So when you're in an industry, when you've got a business and something is not working well, and right now, of course, this book came out for you because you were looking at churches, pandemic hit, nobody's going to church all of a sudden because they couldn't. So we've got that issue now, even though things have opened up at the current time, I, and I'm not up to speed on the exact stats, but my understanding is a lot of people aren't going back again. So you got a significant, you got an entire industry that has been derailed. Um, so they are forced to look at that, but a lot of people have, and, and I'll be frank here. I mean, podcasting is really tumultuous right now. There's so many big players coming in that, I'm going to say my peers, which are people with, you know, decent sized podcasts, but we're not top of the list. Um, the experts are telling us that even the one I hired that across the board, we're seeing about a 30% decline. Most people are, most podcasts are because of these big franchises, powerhouses coming in with celebrities. And there's just so many new shiny objects to look at. So we can sit and be upset or get out of the game or figure out innovation. I mean, that's, isn't that where you see most of the requirement of innovation, I guess? Yes. I mean, in some ways, the answer to your question is all the things that you said before it. Um, I I think, I think one of the things that I, I do look at a lot is that I do think we're really good. We're really good at observation, but sometimes we're really bad at interpretation. So there are things that, that this, the landscape of our world has shifted and then we're looking at cause and effect, but sometimes we are—I think we're—we're we're learning the wrong lessons. So, like in church world, yeah. um, what what's happened is all of these people had to like they, they shut down their their live worship gatherings, right? And then they go and they're doing live streaming, and then everyone's like, "Man, look at these numbers! It's amazing! How many of these people are watching these worship services or whatever?" And then all of these people are not coming back, and so when you you have all of these people who are starting to think about like, what does the future of the church look like? And the, the, the interpretation that they're making of the circumstances and the data is the future of the church is online. Um, and, and I think that's just the wrong interpretation. Not that we shouldn't be engaged online. I definitely think that the church belongs there, but I think when, when, when you're looking at all the different pieces of data and all the different things that we're looking at anthropologically within culture, we're making some really bad interpretations. Um, and I think the same can be true 
for podcasting, the same can be true for small businessing. The same, I mean, like there is, there's all these things happening and our job in some ways is like in my field um, as a strategist is to like really interpret what it is that we're seeing so that we can put together some really practical, innovative plans for what the way forward looks like. You are listening to The Ziegler Show in this episode with Doug Paul on innovation. Next, Doug discusses how we so often, when something isn't working as we want, ask the wrong questions. For example, when it's not working, how do we fix this? We may need to ask, why are we doing it to begin with? Why did we start this in the first place? What is the problem we are trying to solve? That's next. Okay, you have a story. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep on this track because you have a story in the book. I think it was I think it was towards the beginning of the book about a church you were working with. They've got some program that wasn't working, and you know wanted to know how do we fix this. And you came in with you know kind of a bigger picture look, looking at the thing, and and, and your question was why are you even doing this? What purpose yep. was it serving to begin with? That just really hit me because when we see something, let's take podcasts and we say, gosh, we're having a problem, not as many downloads or not as many, whatever. How do you fix this? And obviously we don't all want to look at our business, our job and question, gosh, should we be even doing this? So that's a relevant question, but maybe like you said, can we interpret it? Are we interpreting it differently? The way I was doing it doesn't work. How do I fix that? And you're coming along saying, maybe we shouldn't. How often is that the answer? Yeah, I I would say we're starting with the wrong question. Okay. Um, the, the, the question, and, and just to be clear, I'm not the one coming up with all this stuff. Like I think I'm really good at synthesizing. You're the messenger. I'm giving you credit, buddy. Well, sure. Okay. But I mean, like okay. with, with this idea, I mean, like just read Simon Sinek. I mean, just like start with why. So it's like, yeah, hey, this program isn't working. Uh, how do we fix it? How is the wrong question? What is the wrong question? The right question is why, like, why did we start this in the first place? What was the problem we were trying to solve? And this was the vehicle for that solution. Yeah. Um, and so for for podcasting, it's the exact same thing where we're saying, okay, why did I start this thing in the first place? What was the original problem I was trying to solve? The question is not, how do I fix the podcast? If, if, if it's broken, I'm not saying it's broken. Um, the question is, like, is it solving the original problem that I had? And if it is, then maybe like I can chill out. If it isn't, then maybe we need to start thinking about carving out a different path into our future so that it continues to like do the thing that we need it to do. Like, what's the original why? What's the vision we originally had? And is this vehicle going to continue to be the delivery mechanism towards our vision. Well, and, and even further, I, and I pulled this out from, uh, from you and from the book is not only asking the why, but why this way and to use yes. podcasting as a muse. I am talking with a lot of, a lot of folks about why are we, so we're doing it this way. Is there a different way we can do it? Is there something we can add on? Is there something we can do to make it uh, unique? And there's so many, that's exciting. That feels resilient. It feels opportunity. Yeah. Well, and one of the things, how many podcasts do you have? Three. You have three. Uh So, I mean, like even, even within that you're doing my, my, you're doing three different podcasts, which are delivering different methods of content. Um, Even within that, you have the opportunity to experiment with some different things or to launch a fourth podcast that could be 
a complete failure, but it gives you that the point isn't whether or not it succeeds or fails. The point could be, it gives us the ability to try some new things without like we're creating a parallel path to things that have been successful and we hope continue to be successful. But what if we just had the ability to throw some stuff against the wall and try some different theories or ideas out that like, it doesn't feel like we would rock the boat and the audience. Mm -hmm. If we, if we started messing around too much without knowing that the idea is going to work. I think that's, that's one of the things that I see over and over again is that leaders do sometimes is that they walk into something that is, it's not a sinking ship. It's just not doing what it was doing. And they sometimes walk in with a stick of dynamite and they just blow the whole thing up. Um, or they just don't do anything and eventually it does sink rather than like, what if we just over here on the side where we're not going to create too many waves, let's try some stuff out. Let's experiment knowing that most experiments don't work. Yeah, no, I hear you. I want to take, you know, I said I wasn't going to do this and now I do want to talk about church specifically because I'm interested. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm interested in what you said because you know, to look at that. So I'll just give you my take and I, and I want to hear, I want to hear real world, but I think it's a, it's a, a great muse for us as we're all thinking about our own businesses and, and life. So here's the church and we, it's been in my perspective, I grew up in the church and it pretty much acts the same way. It's a building and you do it this way. You come in and there's worship and then there's a message and then everybody for the most part bolts afterwards and there, and there we go. So here comes the pandemic. We can't go. We have to interact online. Well, if I got to interact with my own church online, I'm now thinking "Eh, I can go listen to anybody. I can check out Andy Stanley. I know that guy. I mean, everybody likes that guy. Let's go listen to him. I can check out him. Now I'm listening to his stuff and he mentions somebody else. And next to the podcast that he has, it says people who like him also like, you know, here's the next big name pastor who's got a best-selling book. So now I'm listening to them. Now I'm not listening to my local pastor as much, man. I realize I can listen to anybody. I can listen to anybody around the world, man. This is awesome. So I got the family and check this guy out or this lady out and we're, we're doing that. Now church opens up. What does it have to offer me? And you saying that their first reaction is just to go online. I'm thinking, how do you compete with that? It can't. Okay. Well, cause it's gotten me thinking, man, the only thing that it has to offer is local engagement community, the people right here where I live and work, because I can't go interact with, I'm not going to go and interact with Stanley's church in Atlanta, I think is where he is or something like that. I'm in Colorado. I interact with people right here. That's always been, that's where my best friends have come from is from the church. And it's not even during the service. And it's in the foyer before or after or saying, let's go out to eat afterwards. And so for you to say that, yeah, the church is talking about that. We need to go online. I'm thinking, holy smokes. I, I don't see it at all. Yeah, I think it's a. It, it, you do not want you, meaning the church, at a local level, like just your average church, um, does not want to get into a content arms race. Yes. With other churches who are more stocked <laughs> to win that race. Um, and I think it's in, in some way. This, it should be a shaking moment in a good way Okay. where it's like, maybe we, we've, we've built the church on to, to be like a content delivery service every, through, through the vehicle of like the sermons on Sundays or whatever. I do think that this is where, again, we can make observations, but interpretations really matter. Yeah. What, what the last, I think, in my opinion, what the last 18 months has shown is 
is that you've got a lot of people who at some point have been involved in local church whose lives look absolutely nothing like the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, that, that should be really, uh, I think, jarring and disturbing to leaders of churches um, and the things that they have been doing. Like, are, are you, are you, are we a social club um, with a little bit of like Christian feel goodness sprinkled on top um, or are we something different? And I, I think we just have to be really honest about whether or not the things that we're doing are designed to do what we need them to do. And I mean, there's a great, there's a great, great quote that a lot of people have heard before, which is like, everything is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. Deming, yeah. The, the church is perfectly designed to get the dumpster fire that has been the last 18 months of what we've been seeing. I mean, Facebook is on fire in the comment section. Um, it's just disgusting uh, for, for everyone. I don't mean just like for Christians, but I mean like everyone, it's disgusting and us included. And so I think there's, we, we have to be honest about what the church is right now and that we, we do not want to get into the content arms race if for no other reason that it doesn't work. Yeah. We already know that like just hearing content week after week after week after week doesn't work. I think increasingly the church needs to make a shift from being a teaching center to a training center um, where the, where the real like life delivery system is going to happen and how we're equipping people, not in whether or not we can do like content downloads or just waterboarding by content, which is what we like. You just named it. Like there are so many people who have, exceptional content that I just have at my fingertips at any point, but they are not going to come and walk with me in my life. Yeah. That's what the local church has the opportunity to do. I like that teaching. We can get anywhere, but training hands-on engaged training, coaching, even, I mean, there's coaching is, is a huge, uh, this is the Ziegler show. I mean, coaching is big. We got a lot of coaches here. Ziegler as a corporation does a lot of coaching. They teach and train coaches. So coaching is big. And that's one where I see, we did a show recently on the benefits of live events. Now that live events are opening up back, back up again, what are the benefits? And it was that, yeah, content, you know, it's hard to compete there because you can get it online, but man, you cannot engage and say, okay, here's what's happening with me. What do you think? You can't, uh, you can't have accountability. No. Yeah. We, we talk all the time and some of the work that we do is that transformation really comes when you have the marriage of event and process. And so if event has the ability to stir someone, they have a revelation about something, they feel their heart or their mind or their body stirred towards something that won't change them. It just gives them awareness that something should change. But if you have a process to kind of catch them around whatever has been stirred and that we can call that accountability, we can call that training, we can call that equipping, we can call that I mean, like I, I can realize like, man, I should really be exercising differently. Thus, I need a personal trainer who's going to hold me accountable um, because I have 20 years to tell me that I don't have, for whatever reason, the willpower it takes to just do it by myself. Yeah. Then that's what, that's how we should be thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it makes me think, uh, you know, from a church standpoint of, okay, if we could just turn them all into AA meetings. For yep. different, for different topics, you know, whether it's the financial AA, the Dave Ramsey financial, you know, AA type gathering, but where we can come alongside that does feel like the opportunity. Well, let me ask you on that. You talked about 
to take this into business at large, you talked about churches, you talked about small groups and you wrote about that and about looking at that and coming to the realization. And I thought you were going to diss it at first, but I don't think you did really. And you said, gosh, really what they were created for was to try to help retention, try to keep people from leaving church. And I thought you were going to diss that, but if I'm correct, you didn't. Um, you said, no, that's a viable reason. I mean, this is, if you can't keep them there, you can't help them. You can't minister to them. So that's, that's viable, but that's never on the table as first. And you actually ranked it first. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think this goes back to like, everything's designed for a particular result. Small groups were designed to be relational flypaper. It was, you might, you might've been attracted to a worship service for a particular reason, And eventually you will leave if you don't have friends in a community that are going on this journey with you. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And that's why small groups were started. But what's happened over time is we've realized, well, the people who are attending or going through our programming, their lives are not dramatically changing. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Um, They're not engaging with people who they aren't already friends with. That's a problem. So they're not living as a mobilized people. What, what if small groups were the vehicle to deliver this and this and this? And it became sort of like the kitchen sink approach. And the problem is they weren't designed to do those things. And so they've got they've been weighed down by all these other things that they were supposed to do. It needs to do discipleship and it needs to do mission and it needs to do justice and it needs to and it needs. And they weren't designed for that. And increasingly, we see them weighted down and bogged down by expectations. Yeah things that they were never designed to do. Well, we're back to you calling us to be aware. What are we doing? And asking that question, why? What is the purpose? I want to take, Doug, some, just some of your salt of the earth businesses and ask you your thoughts on innovation with them because we're not used to seeing it. And I can see some people out there questioning, really, is 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 there a place for innovation, a need for innovation here? Let's look at a restaurant. Actually, I pulled out restaurant, plumbing, and carpet cleaning. I mean, those are kind of businesses that you think, well, out, let's, let's take out the pandemic. Now, I know that did change some restaurants, but today, by far and large, at least in my little town, looks like they're back to normal. I mean, it's a restaurant. It serves ex- whatever kind of food. It has whatever kind of ambiance, and people are coming in. Same thing, plumbing. They do what they do when they're building a house. They do what you do when you have a problem and you call them in, you know, carpet cleaning, you clean your carpets. Are those, how should the, what, how should those folks with businesses such as that be looking at innovation when it's probably easy to think, man, it's been the same since the dawn of time. Yes. I think, um, you, obviously you're, you're trying to bring about disruption in a, in things that feel like what you just said, like they've kind of been this way since the dawn of time. And I think there's a, um, you know, Clayton Christensen, he is a, uh, he wrote what Steve Jobs says was the most important business book he ever read. It's called the innovators dilemma. I think it came out in 1997 and I actually got to, um, he died early last year, but I got to interview him about three years, two and a half, three years ago for wow. the book. Okay. Um, as it turns out, he, he was a uh, Harvard business professor and I was like, you know, it can't hurt to just email him yeah. and see like, would he be willing to have a conversation? And the worst thing you can do is say no. And he wrote back, I was like, sure, That's which was great. And yeah. so I got, got to talk about, it, but he talked about how disruption, um, which leads to innovation. There are three ways in businesses that that, that happens, a disruptive price point, 
uh, a disruptive pra like practice um, or a disrupt a disruption into a new market. Um, mm -hmm. So like when you think about like a disruptive practice that could be confusing, like think about Netflix, like before, like the move from DVD to streaming, it's introducing something brand new that hasn't been really invented yet. That's what Netflix was doing. Yeah. The price point, Disney Plus, thinking about streaming, has a really disruptive price point. It's five bucks or five, five ninety-five or something like. It's really low yeah. for what it is that, that they're doing in the streaming service. And then you've got what, what um, I mean, it completely flopped. But you've got a uh, Quibi, which was the uh, a streaming service that was going to deliver uh, episodes that were nine minutes or less. Really? Okay. And, Interesting. I mean, it's crazy when when you think about it. Um, but they were like, look, there are people who are 17 and younger. This is the, this is the demographic we're trying to reach. And so when you think about plumbing or you think about, um, you know, carpet cleaning or things like that, is there, is there a new product that you can launch that is brand new that will do something that no one has ever seen before? Is there a new market that we can tap into that currently like most, most people aren't tapping into, or is there a price point that we can offer, which means that we're going to have to innovate in the, the business model that we have. And so some of the times when we're working with businesses or nonprofits, NGOs, things like that, we've got, we've got exercises or models that we're helping them think through those three things to bring disruption to those in, in those different areas. Well, and it feels, I mean, you're kind of in that question, that age old business question, you know, if it's not broke, do you break it? And of course you had the contrarian view of if it's not broke, break it. And we're kind of in that, but my gosh, when you look at, we just had, so I'm in a little mountain town. We just had a new car wash open up. I expected it. It was actually, I think it was John Acuff who was talking on a, a show we did or something like that. And he started talking about this car wash that came into town and they started, it was an all you can, you know, all you can do car wash. So for however much money you can go as many times. And he just loved it. He got it, you know, membership for his wife and how awesome. I literally thought that that's, I, I just assumed because I thought that's the innovative thing. That's what this car wash will be. Well, it's not. It's like 15 bucks to go through and it's, it's not that. And I'm not using it. And I actually just thought, you know, my wife goes down to the Springs a couple down, a couple of Colorado Springs a couple of times a week. I'm just going to get her a membership at one of those there. Um, I mean, that's innovation, but that's something, let's say you are the guy with the car wash that's doing well to, it, I feel like we're in that day and age where we've got to expect that somebody's going to come along with a better mount. Just to what you said, those three, name those three places again, at price point. What were the other two? A price point, a product or a market where okay. you can, you can break into the there currently isn't market penetration. Yeah. Somebody's going to come on with a USB, a unique selling proposition that's going to eclipse yeah. yours if you don't have. Well, does it also then call us to really question what we're doing if we look at businesses again or churches or whatever and ask that question of what are we doing? Even if we're doing okay, what are we doing to keep, to have people come here and choose to give us their money as opposed to somebody else? And what would take them away? Because I don't we all somewhat expect that we think we're doing a good job and we expect loyalty that then when that new one of those three things comes along, we realize and they're not that loyal. Yeah, I that that will happen. That does happen. Every entrepreneur, every business owner, every everyone has experienced that if you've been in the business field mm -hmm. where that happens and it can feel really gutting. And I think the thing for us just to remember is that's coming again. 
like that, that, that new thing where disruption is coming for your business, where things are going to get hard again, that's just around the corner. And yeah. so let's not be surprised by it. Let's plan on it. And so one of the things that we do when we're working with, with businesses is just to help them think through what percentage of your finances can you put aside where you're going to be experimenting and tinkering? Because that is a way of thinking about like, what if disruption didn't happen to you? What if you were the disruptor? And again, th this is a way of, of planning. And I think in a very prudent, wise way as a business owner, I mean, I think one of the things that Adam Grant talks about, he wrote, I mean, he's written a number of books. He had a yeah. new one come out. What, my favorite is called Originals. Um, and he talks about how sometimes we think about entrepreneurs as the greatest risk takers. His point, and I just love this, he said, entrepreneurs, the best ones are the best risk mitigators. They're the ones who actually take, who are, because of the way that they're proactively thinking about things, they're constantly trying to think, to, to cycle out the risk because of the choices that they're making. And so if we're thinking, if we know that disruption is coming, no matter what, then we should, we should be building into our business practices and our business finances ways that we're thinking through how we can innovate, even yeah. if it's small things that we can filter into our business so that we can be the people who disrupt rather than the people who are disrupted. Well, you have, I mean, your book is really centered around these five different uh, areas and that you just mentioned. I mean, your first one is identification. And it got me initially thinking about, okay, identify what the problem we're trying to solve or that other thing or the problem the, that hasn't come along yet that we're trying to, I guess, is it fair to say that to predict? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't mean that, and I think this is the thing, it doesn't mean that we have to move for the sake of moving. Like we have to change for the sake of change, but it's like, would we, this goes back to like the brand loyalty question that you were talking about a few minutes ago. Do we know our customers well enough to know the way in which like their needs are changing? Because if our job is to serve their needs in such a way that like they continue to have a really high satisfaction with what it is that we're providing as their needs and desires change, that means that what we're providing, their satisfaction levels are going to drop. Yeah. Yeah. With what our services are. So like, some of this is like, do how well do we know our customer? Do we know our customer from five years ago or do we know our customer from today? And I think that's a really important thing for us to think about yeah. is most of us are, are really familiar with the customer when we first started. But are we just as plugged in with their needs, hopes, wants, desires today as we were when we first started? It's kind of a, it feels like a requirement to, we have to, even in the best times, we've got to up our game because what we're, I love what you said there. In essence, what we're providing is going to become the norm to people. And what are we going to do? That can be frustrating, but it's just the world. I mean, you mentioned uh, Steve Jobs earlier. I mean, he was of course famous for saying people don't know what they want. We're, it's our job to figure out what they want, what they're going to want, what they might want. And then innovate. And of course, I think Apple, I'm a fan of Apple, admittedly, but they do a pretty great job of coming along and innovating things that I didn't even know that I wanted. And here they've come and they provide it. Now everybody else has to keep pace. I, I mean, I think he's right and wrong. OK. Um, I mean, I think. Sometimes when you're taught, like he had the benefit of talking about that as it related to technology. Yeah. Um, he is, at the end of the day, he was stewarding a company that was inventing things. 
True. And like, t- take your plumber again, or your your carpet cleaner. Um, I think sometimes what we want is a clean carpet. Uh, we don't want a new way of thinking about flooring. The thing that we want is a clean carpet. Now, every once in a while, you're going to be able to like invent new flooring. Like, I, I wonder what it was like when like the first person invented faux wood floors. Right. Uh, we're like, what if it didn't have to be as expensive and it cleaned easier and it didn't dent and, and, and. But a carpet cleaner isn't inventing those things if you're a small business owner. They're, they're doing something different. And so I do think it's, it is the alchemy sometimes of having a picture for what thing, what people want that they don't know that they want yet. Yeah. As well as like satisfaction for customers is really important. Yeah. True. Making sure that like they're, we're delivering on what it is that they really say that they want and we're doing it in smooth, efficient brand loyal ways. Yeah. I am grateful for whoever developed whatever chemical that makes the carpet stain free or, you know, that you can, that I've got a carpet that doesn't have stains yeah. after whatever, 12 years we've been in the house. So, so identification though, problem you're trying to solve or stay ahead of and predict the next thing is ideation. And you had on there, it's new habits and tactics and strategies. This makes me think again about that. Well, back to what you said earlier, that these are muscles we've got to be keeping fit. Is that fair? Yeah. 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 And I mean, like, let's use your podcast as an example. Um, I I think one of the things that you can do with, with ideation is usually when we're thinking about ideation, we're just like, all right, you're going to get a group of people. You're going to get around a whiteboard and you're just going to brainstorm. Right. And that's fine. um, But there are, there are like some, essential practices that you can learn. There are in fact books that you can buy that will teach you how to do ideation really, really well. Like one of them is called game storming. And it's, I mean, for, for folks who are interested in the idea of ideation and how you could construct ideas out of very random things, this book called game storming is super fun. Um, and some of this is like, what if you took, um, it's, it's mashing things together and asking like, what would happen if you put these things together? And so like, if I were to, if I were to put like podcasting um, and what's your, what's your favorite TV show right now? Favorite TV show, man. I don't, uh, the last one I saw was, I watched a little bit of uh, the stand. It was uh, a Stephen King. I I liked the depiction of good. I read it as a kid, well, not a kid, young adult. And so I've watched some episodes of that. So if you were to, if you were to really say like, Hey, what would, what would happen if we put like your favorite parts of the stand and a podcast together and we smushed it up, hmm. what would come out of it? Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to put together your favorite um, experience of Netflix and a podcast, what would come out of it? If you were a 17 year old, hmm. I mean, like, and it's just thinking through, we, we, uh, I talk about this in the book, when you have been successful at something, it is exceptionally difficult to see other ways of doing it. Hmm. And so what do you, what do you, what do you have? You've got Kevin, what? 45 million downloads. 52, right? 52. 52 million. Man, I really cheated you there. <laughs> like from a, from a, from a podcast perspective, like I'm not saying you're the top of the charts. Like you, you already said that, but like you've been successful at this thing. Yeah. It's the, the more successful you are, the harder it is to see other ways of doing it. Interesting. And so you, you can't, it's called the curse of knowledge. Yeah. You cannot, um, 
huh. assume that you're just going to be able to think of new ways of doing it by like, like it's going to organically happen. You have to tackle this as a really intentional pursuit. If I want to envision the future of what my podcast could be, or let's take a couple of steps back that it's not about podcasting. It's about content delivery, or let's take a couple of steps back. It's about changing people's motives. What are the different mechanisms we could do for doing that? And I'm assuming like that, that would also be financially viable for me and my family. Right. Um, you, you have to really go after that because you've been so successful at it. Ideation thing is about like, we're not, we're not going to trip into new ways of doing it. We're going to have to really think through how we do that on purpose. Well, the third one you have here, Doug, is experimentation, which you talked about just trying, which you said necessitates a failure. I I mentioned this guy. I don't even know if he exists anymore. I assume he does, but Franz Johansson, he wrote a book called the Medici effect long time ago, probably 15. I've I've read it. Have you really? 15, 20 years ago. Well, I just, there was a line in there and he talked about entrepreneurs and you talked about them, you know, we think of them as risk takers and you said risk mitigators. I really like that. He just simply said he finds that they're not in essence more brilliant or have anything that other people don't do, but they generally are willing to try more things than the average person. And you said a minute ago, it was even to the point of business wise, having a budget where we are always trying instead of being over here and just sticking with the status quo. Is that a fair Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because again, remember, we think about, you know, we think about um, GE or Hewlett Packard or like giant corporations. And we're like, well, they have they have R&D departments. Right. Um, Why do why do they have research and development departments? It's their way of standardizing and putting innovation into the culture. That's why. And I think what I want to say is, like, you can have one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand million dollar business and still put a line item that is representative of the size of your business where you, where you are tinkering around. And, you know, going back to a book I just mentioned, um, I think it's from this book. Sometimes I'm, I might be misattributing, but like Adam Grant, he, he pointed out like in some research that they found where he was quoting someone where the, the people who were the most successful at, at experimenting were the people who generated the most ideas Interesting. And so what we tend to do is like we have an idea, whether you are someone who considers yourself someone who's good at at ideating or not, and we will latch on to that one idea um, as if like our heart is somehow like really invested in it. And Clayton Christensen talks about like, look, 90 percent of successful businesses, they end up with a different idea than the one they started with. Ninety percent. And so I think some of this is. If we can, if we can start like removing our heart a little from some of the ideas that we're generating, and just say like the most the most important thing is just to to generate as many ideas as as possible, and then really look at them dispassionately and say what are the ideas that are worth experimenting with, and not even starting with just one, but maybe two or maybe three, and then we we let the results dictate which is the which is the one to move forward with. I like the idea of having this, you know, whatever is working and just having a budget for experimentation. Again, I just, I think that most of us as small business people, which that's the majority of our audience, we're looking for back to what we started with the show, that thing that works. And now that it works, yay. 
and we've, yeah. we've hit it and we keep going and we don't think about the need for that. Well, your fourth point here was probably the one that I had to dig into the most. It's not one that I, out of these five things, it's not one that I have coherently in mind and mobilization. And, you know, I took out of that, if I, I, a couple words that came were measure and structure, but give us the layman's view of what you mean by mobilization. Yeah. And I think this one is more geared towards, um, towards social innovation and a little bit less towards business. I would I would probably frame this one a little bit differently on the business side of it, because what we're talking about is like, how do things scale? Right. And the, the scaling is you really have to understand why something works. And the easiest way to multiply something is if you understand why it works. And so you can get it into the hands of more and more people. Okay. So it, going back to if you're a plumber or if you are a. Um, you're cleaning carpets. How do you grow the business? Well, at some point, your personal bandwidth and the number of hours that you can put into cleaning carpets or fixing sinks or toilets on any given week is going to stall out because there are only 168 hours in a week. So you have to add more people. You have to add the bandwidth. And that mobilization piece is saying, all right, if you're really good at plumbing, how do you multiply your skill set into the life of another? That's what mobilization is. It's transfer of skill sets from one person to another, there was one of you fixing toilets. Now there are two yeah. and now there are 10 and now there are a hundred. And how, how do you, how do you really simplify the best of what you do so that you can codify it and then give it to other people? Well, so I'm thinking, you know, delegation, duplication. I mean, it's the old Michael Gerber's e-myth yeah. of does, do we, did we go into self-employment and now we own a job or are we actually creating a business. Okay. Yes. Last one, multiplication. And you had, or maybe I'm paraphrasing, you know, to duplicate, delegate, equip, um, but multiplication, can we multiply? So it's almost the, the, is it the jumping off point of mobilization? It is. It's the, and the room, it's the, there, there are always going to be barriers to scaling always. Um, and it's asking what are the barriers that we can control and, and put de- like move down the walls so that this thing can reach its maximum potential. When you look at, I'm just going to take a broad stroke. When you look at, well, let's again, look at our audience. We have a, an audience of what I call aspiring demographic. These are people trying to grow and better themselves and change. A lot of them have either side gigs or small businesses. Some have huge businesses. Where do you find the biggest, what is, if this is fair to ask, the biggest hang up? handicap towards innovation. What is it that we have as a culture right now? I, I think um, th- there are a couple of big myths that exist. Uh, I, I think for your audience, probably the biggest one is, um, is around Eureka moments. Hmm. And it's this, what we're doing is we are, we think that somewhere out there is the right idea. And with it comes like all of the right business strategy. Yeah. And if I don't have that thing yet, it's going to eventually strike me like lightning. Um, and that's not the way that Eureka moments actually work. The myth is that there are Eureka moments out there. Uh, what we see more than anything else is, 
you over time as you keep trying, keep experimenting, keep at something, you're accumulating more wisdom, more experiences of things that work, things that don't work. And you keep testing your theory. And eventually you're realizing, oh, that isn't right. I've got to try this other thing over here. I, I think the thing that we think is that the reason it's not working is that I've got the wrong, like I, I just haven't had my moment yet. The lightning hasn't struck yet. And I think successful entrepreneurship and successful um, innovation around business is far more around perseverance, around a couple of key skill sets. And one of those is just experimentation. Keep experimenting as if your life depends on it, because in fact, it does. Well, so along with the Eureka moments, it brings me back to what you just talked about, the curse of knowledge. And you have a piece in the book that talks about um, I don't have frame uh, front, front of memory right now, but about experts. And I think we had a show we did recently. We played a clip of Zig Ziglar and he talked about how often those insights, those key insights that we're looking for, like you said, the Eureka moment that you would think, well, that's going to come from the top brass, right? The, the highest paid people. And he's saying that so often we find the innovation, we find a new idea from some of the lowest paid workers who are sitting there doing something by rote day in and day out. And they've got the freedom of their brains to be looking around and go, man, that the way we're doing that is stupid. Or why don't we do it this way? And yet those aren't the people that we go to for innovation. And is that, again, is that, is that a part of that aspect of we're looking for the big eureka moments from the highest paid people, from the brilliant, and yet so often that's not where it comes from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it goes back to how, how we see ourselves, I think, is important in our posture towards innovation. One of the things that we talk about, like I, I, I help run an innovation shop, um, is that we are not, we, we cannot take the posture of experts. We can say that we have expertise, um, but we have to be in the postures of learners all the time. Uh, we have to be continually curious. We have to always be looking for new ways and uh, expecting new ways of doing things. Because as soon as we think that we are in stable for, footing for like, we're the experts, you now come like, Moses should come to the mountain All right. All um, right. so that he can deliver the goods. Then we're, we're in, like, we are no longer going to be in a position where we can help people innovate. That was uh, that was a little mic drop right there. Uh, I don't know if I can do better. That may be the intro clip uh, to the show right there, man. Doug, thank you, man. I am so grateful that you came out, that you had the, the vision that you did came out with this. And I know you had a lot of focus on, uh, churches at the forefront of the book, but you do such a great job. I love the stories of hitting it. And I just got to thinking about, again, my personal life, my business and everything, and this need for slash opportunity of innovation. So uh, I hope that this motivates us all to be exercising that muscle more, man. Thank you for taking the time and being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, friends, I hope you hear the message here is not just go break everything you've got going, especially if it's going right, but definitely to audit it and consider where you need to be innovating or considering where innovation may soon be needed. Again, you can find Doug at DougPaul.org and check out his book, Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. It's relevant to any business out there. Coming up in episode 918, I asked listeners this question. If you had to spend $3,000 on coaching, consulting, or counseling today, 
under penalty of death, what area of your life would you pay to get help with? Health and wellness, personal development, or business work and career? As always, we got eye-opening results, and Tom Ziegler and I talked through them. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.